Welcome everyone to the Naked Guru experience. As ever, it always helps if you like and subscribe to our content. And a big thank you to our sponsors, the Psychedelic Society. Today's guest is Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert is a biologist and author best known for his hypothesis of morphic resonance. At Cambridge University, he worked in developmental biology as a fellow of Clare College. In his latest book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, Rupert rides as both a scientist and a spiritual explorer. He looks at several spiritual practices that are personally transformative and have scientifically measurable effects. Welcome and thanks for agreeing to the discussion, Rupert. Good to be with you, Ryan. So first of all, Rupert, I love this book. I thought it was a beautiful mix of spirituality, religion, um, psychedelics, and a practical guide to, to life. I just wanted to begin by addressing the title, uh, Ways to Go Beyond and, and Why They Work. What, what do you mean by beyond? How would you define that? I'd say beyond our normal, <clears throat> ordinary states of consciousness. Um, and in, in the most extreme cases, these, these would be full-blown mystical experiences, the feeling that we're in the presence of a greater consciousness than our own. Um, that we're connected or uh, with something much larger than ourselves. And many people have these mystical experiences as a result of spiritual practices and some as a result of taking psychedelics. Um, but they can also happen spontaneously. And one of the things that um, the biologist Sir Alistair Hardy discovered when in Oxford about 50 years ago, he started something called the Religious experience research unit at Oxford University um, because he was convinced that mystical experiences were much more common than most people assumed and he launched appeals through newspapers and on BBC radio and so on and soon had thousands of stories and what these made clear and this has opened up a whole field of the natural history of mystical experience um, what these made clear is that lots of perfectly normal people have mystical experiences and they're very often extremely reluctant to talk about them because they think they'll be classified as psychiatrically disturbed or something like that um, many people have them in childhood a sense of connection with nature many have them um, through near-death experiences uh, which are often very transformative for people um, and they often just happen spontaneously so Mystical experiences and the sense of going beyond our normal state of consciousness um, happen both through spiritual practices and religious practices, and uh, also without any practices at all, like someone who has a near-death experience as a result of an accident or a heart attack has not been looking for this kind of experience, it just comes to them. So it's quite a broad field of inquiry. Yeah, and I get I get the impression that this book has not just come out of the blue. It's something. It's a life's work as 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 well. Would you say? What What was your inspiration for writing it now at this particular time? Well, um, I think because at the moment there's uh, there are many people on spiritual quests, and the that there's now been a lot of scientific study of religious and spiritual practices. And what these studies have shown is that people who have religious or spiritual practices <clears throat> are on the whole happier, healthier and live longer than those that don't. 
Anders, um, is a very important finding um, uh, because the normal secular materialist assumption is that spirituality and religion are a waste of time, that they're something only for people who are feeble-minded or deluded or who've been brainwashed by uh, priests or something like that. Um, and, uh, and these are things that need to be eradicated by scientific education and critical thinking. Well, those that standard view, which is what was certainly prevalent when I was being at school and at university, and in fact, for most of my life, is now giving way to an appreciation of the importance of spiritual practices for mental and physical health and well-being. And the evidence is now so striking and overwhelming that a new generation of militant atheists like Sam Harris um, are not against spiritual practices. In fact, Sam Harris is now giving online meditation courses. Um, and uh, Alain de Botton, the atheist philosopher, who's a thoroughgoing materialist in his thinking, wrote a book a few years ago called Religion for Atheists, um, because he feels that atheists and people who've given up spiritual practices are seriously missing out. Uh, their lives are seriously impoverished. Because after all, if it makes you happier and healthier to have spiritual and religious practices, not having them presumably makes you unhappier and unhealthier. Um, so uh, the the old sort of debate between sort of militant atheists and spiritual and religious people is now much the front line of this is much more blurred because a lot of atheists have now taken up spiritual practices and recognized their value. So there's a whole new context for this debate. Um, and because I've spent many years um, as a kind of spiritual explorer, as well as a scientific researcher, um, for me, these books, uh, this is a sequel to a book called Science and Spiritual Practices, which is about seven other spiritual practices. Uh, these two books together um, were what I wanted to do to pull together my own experience and my own scientific interests and spiritual interests, bringing them all together. Um, and this seemed the right time to do it. Yeah, and it, it's, it's beautifully done. Um, you, in, in the uh, openings of the book, you, you address some, some very kind of overlooked ways uh, to go beyond, as it were. Uh, you touch upon sports and animals and, and fasting. Um, and and when, when I read it, I, I felt it had never occurred to me before uh, that, that sport could be a, a way to go beyond and that, um, and that, that our pets are a way to go beyond. And, and I, I really love that. And one of the, the key focuses, obviously, is through the, one of the most powerful ways uh, seems to be the, the focus on psychedelics. And I, I just wondered if you could just go into that a little bit deeper for us. And, and it seems to be there's a, psych a psychedelic renaissance at hand at the moment. Uh, would you agree? Yes. Um, I mean, psychedelics were very big, of course, in the 60s and 70s, which is when I first encountered them. I think I took LSD for the first time in 1970. Um, um, and then, of course, there was this backlash and they were un illegal, but it's not as if they ever went away. But in the last decade or so, the, the um, legal research on psychedelics has resumed, um, particularly here in Britain and in the United States. And 
this research, I think, is is helping to open a new chapter. Um, I think Michael Pollan's book, which came out last year, How to Change Your Mind, was a kind of milestone because Michael Pollan is a very good investigative journalist and writer. Um, his previous books on plants, Botany of Desire and uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma and Food, um, are very well done. But he decided to turn his attention to psychedelics, as you know, because of this new phase of research. The subtitle is The New Science of Psychedelics. Um, and he tells us in the book he's a materialist and an atheist. Um, and uh, But he felt he ought to take these psychedelics as part of his investigative journalism, which he did. And by the end of the book, um, he his whole mind has changed. The book's called How to Change Your Mind. Um, he's now seeing consciousness much more widely distributed in nature instead of just being contained inside human brains. Um, and uh, there's a kind of paradigm shift uh, that happens in him. And um, I think this has been happening to people for a long time. For many people, taking psychedelics is a kind of rite of passage for young people. And certainly the first time I took LSD, it was for me. Um, before that, I was a, I'd been educated in the standard materialist and atheist worldview, and I was a scientist at Cambridge. Um, and uh, no one had ever told me that there were incredible realms of experience that were accessible to almost anyone and, and rather easily. Um, and this LSD experience was a total revelation to me about the possibility of much huger realms of consciousness than anything I'd been prepared for. Um, and this made me interested in consciousness in general. I took up transcendental meditation soon after that because I wanted to explore consciousness uh, without drugs as well as with drugs. Um, and so I think for many people who've taken psychedelics, it does open up this whole uh, perspective. You can take psychedelics and believe, if you're an atheist or a materialist, that it's nothing but chemical changes happening in your brain. But certainly for most people, the experience feels as if it's going beyond that. It, it is a form of going beyond normal consciousness. Um, and then the question that everyone has to face if if they have a dilemma in how to interpret it is, do you want to believe primarily in the materialist theory, which is, after all, an intellectual theory that simply assumes that matter's unconscious and the mind's nothing but the activity of the brain? Or do you trust your own experience? And after all, science is meant to be based on experience. It's empirical. The word empirical means experience. Um, so to dismiss one's own experience in favor of a theory, and moreover, a theory which is extremely bad at explaining consciousness that leads to the so-called hard problem in the philosophy of mind. Um, you can choose that if you're an absolutely committed fundamentalist materialist. But for most people, these experiences move them on in their personal development to a wider view of consciousness. Yeah, and one very interesting thing uh, I found that you pointed out um, in, in this particular chapter was there is also a religious argument against uh, the use of psychedelics. And you highlighted a very, um, a very poignant argument there of, of 
of why that argument may not be uh, fully true. Could you could you outline that for us or? Well, I think some religious people are suspicious of psychedelics because they think it's cheating. It's a kind of shortcut um, and that true spiritual experience should be hard won. Um, but I think one problem with that argument is that a lot of mystical experiences, as I already said, happen spontaneously. Um, you know, someone's playing in the woods as a child and suddenly they have this sense of this overwhelming presence of some benign power and love surrounding them. They, that's not hard won through years of Bible reading or chanting the Quran or anything. Um, um, some people have near-death experiences that change their lives and that's just because they've had a car accident. Um, some people have the, these experiences just by being in a beautiful place in nature. Um, or by being in love. Um, so um, I don't think the hard work argument is a very persuasive one because it would dismiss a great many um, genuine spiritual experiences. Um, and I think uh, another point is, of course, that psychedelics have been part of shamanic practices in, in some parts of the world, including the Amazon. Um, for many, many generations and have been integrated with their spiritual worldview. And for me, one of the most interesting evolutionary developments at the moment is the growth of psychedelic churches like Santo Daime and Union do Vegetal in Brazil, um, where uh, particularly Santo Daime is uh, the, the ayahuasca traditionally used in the Amazon is used as a kind of sacrament within these ceremonies and integrated with a whole religious perspective um, and prayers and, and um, you know, saints and Jesus and Mary and so on. And um, studies on Santo Daime groups in Europe have shown that people who belong to these groups are not crazy and psychotic, but are actually have a better state of mental health and a better balance than uh, regular people who don't have these practices. So um, I think a lot of people within the religious world are just simply unfamiliar uh, with with this world and therefore a bit afraid of it because it's something unfamiliar. Um, there are some people who like uh, the late philosopher Zainer at Oxford who was who was Jewish he was extremely against it because he felt that it, it was just not part of the traditional way way of doing things actually he may be wrong about that because Benny Shannon who's a professor of psychology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem who's of course Jewish uh, spent a long period in Brazil investigating ayahuasca and its effects and took it himself repeatedly and his in his book Landscapes of the Mind uh, applies a kind of academic psychological approach to analyzing these experiences and he's the author of the biblical entheogen hypothesis which you may or may not have come across but um, he argues that um, Moses, in some of his experiences, the burning bush, the tablets of the law, he was clearly in an altered state of consciousness. Uh, the descriptions in the book of Exodus make this very clear. Um, and so Shannon asks, could it? 
be that something like ayahuasca was used in the Middle East, you'd need then a source of DMT. Um, and it turns out that an acacia tree called shittim is full of DMT. You'd need a source of the uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor that in Brazil comes from Banisteriopsis, the vine. Um, and indeed, there's exactly such a thing uh, grows in the Middle East, Syrian rue. It's a herb called pergamon harmala. And harmaline, the active principle of Banisteriopsis, was first isolated from pergamon harmala. That's why it's called harmaline. When Moses got the tablets of the law, he then gave instructions for making the Ark of the Covenant, and it had to be made out of shittim wood. Um, and uh, so anyway, Benny Shannon, it, it's speculative, uh, but it's interesting to me that somebody who's a respectable Jewish intellectual figure living in Israel um, is putting forward this hypothesis seriously. Um, and of course, it's possible they never discovered that these two plants mixed together could produce these effects. But on the other hand, it's perfectly possible they did. And um, Rick Strassman, who is one of the main researchers on DMT, who's also Jewish, uh, wrote a book on um, the Jewish prophets um, and how some of their altered states of consciousness resemble effects of DMT. He's not saying they were taking DMT, but he's saying there's a great overlap in their experience. So I think this is a, a very interesting area of debate and exploration. And, um, you know, uh, we don't know what people were taking in the past, but more sometimes is found out. I mean, recent discoveries of cannabis in ancient pottery vessels in the Middle East um, suggest they were taking cannabis. I mean, it's, um, and of course, it's been taken in India in a religious context for millennia. So for you, for you, Rupert, when we are using these tools, um, say, whether it's uh, LSD or ayahuasca, for you as both a scientist and a spiritual explorer, what is it that you believe, after your years of experience, what is it you believe we are actually doing? Well, I think one of the things that these uh, drugs are doing is inhibiting uh, normal activities in our brain. I mean, normally we have this constant inner dialogue going on when we're not doing anything in particular, that um, inner dialogue, rumination, worry, anxiety, uh, fantasies, etc. And the regions of the brain involved in that activity, uh, the default mode network, um, sort of blocks out other things. And one of the points of meditation is that by focusing consciousness on the breathing or on a mantra, uh, the default mode network becomes less active. And sometimes, especially in moments when people feel a great sense of connection and presence, um, is, is not active at all. Now, the default mode network is also shut down by engagement in physical activity, which is why sports can have such a powerful effect on people's consciousness. They bring people totally into the present. And if you're 50 feet up a rock face, um, 
you're not worrying about whether you paid the gas bill or something your girlfriend said that pissed you off. You know, know it's where the next hand grip is um, and where you're going to put your feet. And if you're in the middle of a football game and the ball's being passed to you, again, you're totally in the present. So sports have this effect of bringing people into the present, which is why for many people in the modern world, they're one of the most powerful ways of being in the prep, which is why I have sports as a spiritual practice in my book, Ways to Go Beyond. So um, I think what happens with psychedelics is that one of the things they do is shut down the default mode network. I mean, we know this from studies in brain scanners of people taking psychedelics. And they also uh, enable different regions of the brain to connect up in new ways. I personally think that what they're doing is um, stopping the activity that inhibits our access to these mystical states of consciousness by being in the present and by being open to greater forms of consciousness. Um, and it's not so much that they're producing these uh, experiences, but they're opening us to them. And we can be open to visionary experiences or mystical experiences in other ways too. So it's not specific to a particular kind of molecule. Um, it's uh, one way in which we can become open to them. And as I show in my book, Ways to Go Beyond, um, I discuss seven different kinds of spiritual opening there. Um, so there are many different ways through spiritual practices of opening up. And I think that what they're telling us is that there are other forms of consciousness um, greater than our own. And this, after all, is what practically everyone in the world has always believed until the advent of modern science in the 17th century, and more particularly the advent of scientific materialism in the 19th century, uh, when materialistic atheists said there's no such thing as consciousness in the universe, it's completely unconscious and mechanical. And we're machines like everything else, and, and our brains are nothing but computers. Um, and we're, our consciousness experience doesn't do anything. Um, uh, well, that's a wildly eccentric view from the point of view of most of human history. And the reason that all cultures, shamanic cultures, religious cultures, have uh, taken it for granted that there are many forms of consciousness out there, the spirits of ancestors, angels, um, demons of various kinds, animal spirits, um, angel, uh, then, then devas, and, as in the Hindu tradition, rather like angels, and then an ultimate form of consciousness, God or the ultimate or the absolute. Um, and the, the reason people have thought these things exist is not because they've been brainwashed by uh, some, some priests or anything, it's because these things are a matter of experience for many people and um, that people are responding to the, the fact they've experienced these forms of consciousness, um, both in dreams and through mystical states, um, and that these their, way, their interpretations of them um, are the basis of their religious or mythological systems. But it all starts from experience. And um, psychedelics are probably the quickest and easiest way to open us to these realms of experience. Yes, be beautiful, beautiful. And one thing you're most known for, or one of the things you're, you're mainly known for, is um, morphic resonance. And hmm. one 
one part of your book I particularly was um, particularly enjoyed was how you merged that in uh, morphic, morphic resonance associated with LSD users. Uh, I just wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. I found that fascinating. Well, morphic resonance is the idea of a memory in nature. And um, at, in its most general, it says that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. Um, it means that each species has a kind of collective memory. Each individual draws on it and contributes to it. And in that sense, it's very similar to Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Um, so uh, morphic resonance works on the basis of similarity. Um, and I think actually our normal memory works by morphic resonance. The, the standard view is that memories are stored inside our brains. Um, but as I show in my book, The Science Delusion, called Science Set Free in America, um, there's very little evidence that memories are stored in brains. People have tried to find memory stores for decades and failed over and over again. And I think that's because they're not there. Um, I think that our brains resonate with themselves in the past. Morphic resonance is a resonance across time. And um, that uh, we pick up our memories from ourselves in the past by a kind of resonance. So the brain is more like a, a TV receiver than a video recorder. Now, when it comes to psychedelic experiences, if you take uh, a psychedelic, say ayahuasca, that's been taken for centuries before within particular cultures, taking that substance or mixture of substances brings about changes in your brain, which are similar to those that have happened in the brains of people who've taken ayahuasca in the past. And that will put you into resonance with them. You'll enter an altered state of consciousness, but that altered state of consciousness will be influenced by the memories, a collective memory of people who've taken the same drug before. And that might mean that you could pick up elements from that experience which are not personal elements. They're more like what Jung would have called archetypes in the collective unconscious. And in fact, the um, psychologist Claudio Naranjo did some research on this in, in Chile. He gave ayahuasca to urban uh, people who knew middle class urban people who knew nothing about Amazonian cultures. Um, and people were having visions of jaguars and and serpents and things, which are characteristic themes in the mythologies of ayahuasca taking cultures in the Amazon. I don't think that's because DMT and harmaline um, fit into some kind of jaguar cell in the brain that makes you see a jaguar. I think it's because they're picking up memories from these mythologically enriched experiences. And uh, so this would mean that with any uh, drug, you pick up experiences from past users. People who take heroin, for example, would tune into a field of past heroin uh, users and ad addicts, um, which wouldn't necessarily be a very good place to be. Um, people who take LSD would tune into the experience of those who've taken it before them. And the first person who experienced it was Albert Hoffman. So this is much more recent because it's a chemically modified drug, then shamanically used psychedelics like ayahuasca or magic mushrooms. Um, so uh, I think that the, you know, the experience we'd tune into with NSD would be heavily influenced by sort of 
the 1960s and California and the Glastonbury Festival and other uh, sort of festival type experiences and uh, very much to do with 20th century, late 20th century culture uh, and psychedelic art and that sort of thing. Um, so, of course, we have our own experiences, but what I'm suggesting is they're shaped by this kind of collective memory. Yes, and uh, early on in this chapter, you did mention as well some very interesting research finding that uh, most of people in the Silicon Valley were found to have been um, experimenting in taking uh, these these things like LSD. Was, your, um, was the point you were trying to make there that this is heavily linked with evolution or technological development uh, as well. Is there some link there, do you believe? Well, I, this came about through uh, through my friend Ralph Abraham, who lives, uh, he's at the University of California at Santa Cruz, which is right next to Silicon Valley. And he was part of the early growth of visual mathematics uh, on computers, um, visualizing chaos um, uh, graphics and so on. He himself had a lot of experience with DMT and LSD in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and his visionary experiences were a major incentive for him to do this computer graphics work to try and bring about on a computer screen something of this visionary state or visionary patterns. And it turns out that um, people involved in the field of computer graphics, um, a, a great many of them, um, uh, well, most of them, in fact, in a survey that was carried out in the late 90s, had actually taken um, psychedelics and were very influenced by psychedelics in their work. Um, and in fact, some people suggested that uh, you know, the, if the Japanese wanted to catch up, they'd better send people over to California to have psychedelic experiences. Um, uh, so the, I think there's no doubt that this has had a large influence on the culture, at least of people engaged in the, the graphics part of computer graphics in Silicon Valley. And that feeds into gaming, animations, simulations, etc. It may not have quite so much effect on people who are, you know, working on new versions of Microsoft Word or, uh, you know, spreadsheets for Excel spreadsheets in, in um, you know, Microsoft in Washington State. Uh, um, in fact, it may be a disadvantage if you're working on programming spreadsheets. Um, but for the, the enormous triumphs that have been in the realm of computer graphics, I think it's undoubtedly been an influence. Yes, yes. No, wonderful. And now, just moving away from psychedelics, you've addressed uh, a number of, of ways to go beyond, a number of methods. And one of them what really stood out to me and that, that has only recently been important in my life since, since you mentioned it, actually, is the power of prayer. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how and when you got into prayer. And I, I believe you are, I don't want to define you here, but you are Christian, you you follow the Christian uh, religion. Um, but I know you've traveled the world as well and, and, and know many, many different uh, perspectives on that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, prayer and what it means to you. Well, I was um, 
I went through a long atheist phase, as I mentioned earlier, you know, by the time I was about 14 or 15, um, largely with, under the influence of my science teachers at school. Um, I got hold of the idea that, you know, science is progressive, looks to the future and is atheistic and has no need for medieval superstitions and so forth, like religion. Um, so that was the view I took until I had this epiphany with LSD that I mentioned earlier. And I, that led me to take up transcendental meditation. And because I got interested in Indian philosophy through meditation and yoga, uh, when an opportunity came up for a job in India at an international agricultural institute, um, I left my fellowship in Clare College, Cambridge, and um, went to live in India because I was very drawn to India and I was very attracted by the culture. And also, I thought it'd be much more interesting than just more and more years in the academic world in England. I mean, I loved my time at Cambridge, but I felt I'd had enough um, and wanted to do something more exciting and different, more exotic. Um, anyway, I was working in India and uh, I was primarily interested in Hinduism and doing meditation and yoga. I went to temples on Hindu pilgrimages, went to discourses by gurus and so forth, and found that their ideas about the nature of consciousness were extraordinarily interesting and helpful. I then had a, went through a Sufi phase. I, had a, I was friendly with a Muslim family and the grandfather of my friend was a Sufi teacher. And we became friendly, he and I, and he taught me how to meditate in a Sufi manner. And again, mystical Islam I found very attractive. Um, and then a new thought crossed my mind, partly at the suggestion of a Hindu guru. I asked him about his advice on spiritual pathways. And he said, all paths lead to God. He said, you come from a Christian family, Christian background. Uh, so the most natural path for you would be to a Christian path. And, you know, Hindus often say you can go up a mountain by different paths, but all those paths meet at the top of the mountain. Um, and that was a, a sort of startling idea. And the last thing I expected a Hindu guru to say to me. Um, and then I thought, OK, well, I'll try that. And I started praying with the Lord's Prayer as well as meditating. And I found this was a very, very helpful practice. And then I started going to church in, in Hyderabad, where I was living. And I just found, I'd, it because it fitted my whole tradition, my ancestors, it just, I, I found it was sort of very connecting, healing. Um, and so gradually I got more interested in the Hindu, uh, the Christian tradition. And then I found uh, a wonderful Christian mystic called Father Bede Griffiths, who lived in an ashram in South India, a Benedictine monk who wore the orange robes of a sannyasin. And um, the ashram was a kind of hybrid of Hindu and Christian. And I, I was found that enormously helpful because he had a very comprehensive view of both traditions, um, deeply uh, interested in the Upanishads and gave discourses on Indian philosophy, which were actually better than most of the ones I heard from Hindu gurus. Um, and also introduced me to the Christian mystical tradition and the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas and so on. Um, 
so I found then that the prayer, um, petitionary prayer, um, became more and more part of my life, as well as meditation. Uh, I, right now, I pray in the morning, I meditate in the mornings and I pray in the evenings. Um, well, as I show in my book, uh, Ways to Go Beyond, uh, petitionary prayer, which is the commonest kind, and it's often dismissed as being sort of too crude and mundane and asking for things. It's actually the commonest kind in all traditions all over the world. When people pray, they're mostly asking for, for higher forms of consciousness to help them in various ways, for protection, for healing, to help friends and family, um, to for peace. Uh, uh, there's all sorts of things that people pray for. Often very simple and mundane things, you know, passing exams, success in their business and so forth. Um, and the reason I find it so helpful is that um, I see it as completely complementary to meditation. In meditation, one's detaching from concerns of the world and detaching from one's worries and thoughts to go to the ground of consciousness itself. Um, and I see that as like breathing in. Now, in petitionary prayer, one starts with an invocation to a higher spiritual being to whom one's praying, our Father who art in heaven, Hail Mary, full of grace, Om Namah Shivaya, O Allah. Whatever the being one's praying to, one starts with an invocation connecting with the spiritual source and then directing intention towards the concerns in the normal, mundane, everyday world that one's living in. So it connects spirituality with the problems and issues in one's everyday life. Uh, rather than withdrawing from them, as in meditation, it's connecting with them. And so that's why I see petitionary prayers like breathing out. And so I don't see meditation and petitionary prayers contradictory. That's why I think they're complementary, because we have to breathe in and we also need to breathe out. And uh, I think for people who only meditate, it can involve a kind of withdrawal from the problems of the world, which go on unchanged when they come back from the calming meditation, certainly helpful and restful and, and, and it protects against depression and it has many benefits. Um, but prayer is a much more direct connection with the world around one and people around one. Um, and is, I think, connecting in a different way. Um, so I find it extraordinarily helpful to do. And um, what I suggest in my book is that people start off, if they want to start praying, uh, with prayers that come from their own ancestral tradition. I mean, if from a Christian background with the Our Father, the most basic prayer, from a Hindu background, things like the Gayatri mantra, from a Muslim background, the basic daily prayers, from a Jewish background, the, the fundamental basic prayers of Judaism, starting from there. Um, and, or even simpler, um, simply asking God or uh, Blessed Virgin Mary or the angels or whatever one's view of higher consciousness or the absolute or however one puts it, um, asking for blessings on oneself and on one's friends and family and one's life and the people one meets and on 
the country and on the problems of the world and so on. Just asking for blessings um, is a very, very simple and effective form of prayer. So um, I think that prayer is greatly underappreciated at the moment. And a hundred years ago, most people would have prayed. Um, nowadays, a lot of people meditate. And when I give talks, I often ask the audience, you know, how many people meditate? And it's usually around 90 percent. I mean, when I ask how many people pray at least once a week, it's more like 20 percent. So but I think if one had asked the same question 50 years ago, most people would have prayed and most people would never have heard of meditation. So I think the reason meditation has become more popular and has been taught much more widely is because it fits more with the secular worldview. Even if you're an atheist, you can meditate because you don't have to accept the existence of any form of consciousness beyond your own. You can believe it's just doing something to your brain, like a gym for the brain or something. Um, whereas to pray, you do have to have some kind of belief, namely that there's a form of consciousness beyond yourself that you can pray to. If you think you're the highest form of consciousness or humans in general are the highest form of consciousness in the universe, then there's nothing to pray to. And that's why atheists on the whole don't pray. Um, they can't pray because their belief system excludes it as a possibility. But atheists are actually a, a minority. I mean, in the service of British population as a whole, about 14% among even in kind of hardcore scientific engineering and medical professions, recent surveys show that they're about 25 percent. But uh, just as many, in fact, more people are religious or spiritual, but not religious or have a spiritual, oblique religious worldview. And in the scientific community, about 45 percent classify themselves as non-religious, atheist or agnostic, and about 45 percent as spiritual or religious or both. Um, so even among scientists, it's, it, they're not all sort of Richard Dawkins type militant atheists. The, the majority are not. Yes, yeah. And, you know, that brings me very nicely to a question that I ask uh, everybody. And I've asked now people all around the world. Um, it's something that I saw you discuss many years ago with Krishnamurthy and uh, Terence McKenna. Um, but, and I wonder if, if your concept has, has changed somewhat, but what is your concept of God, Rupert? How, how do you see it? How do you define it? What have you come to understand this uh, linguistic term as conceptually? Well, first and foremost, God is a conscious being or consciousness. Um, God is not a thing, not an object that you'd find by sending spaceships up into the sky or anything like that. So when people like Richard Dawkins say, with science has found no evidence of God, it's treating God as if God is a thing, among other things. Whereas, I mean, this shows the most naive attitude. I mean, all religions and philosophies um, think of God as a conscious being or as consciousness itself. And um, so then since I think there's no need for us to reinvent the wheel, uh, I think it's uh, my thinking starts from what traditional doctrines or teachings are. And the one I found most helpful um, to get the general idea was the Hindu notion of Sat, Chit, Ananda. Um, the Hindu notion of 
ultimate consciousness or Brahman, the ultimate divine being, is, is, is threefold. Sat means the ground of conscious being. God is the ground of all being and of consciousness. Without God, nothing would exist. God underlies the being of everything, your being, my being, the being of the computer, uh, the, of the trees, the plants, the earth, the galaxies, and so forth. If God ceased to exist, everything would just disappear. God sustains the universe. Whereas the Richard Dawkins view, uh, the sort of atheist uh, parody of God, is that God's some kind of engineer who starts off the universe in the first place, like an engineer who designs and fine tunes the laws and constants of nature and the machinery of the universe and then presses the start button and the Big Bang happens and everything goes on automatically thereafter uh, with no need for God at all. That's the kind of God they don't believe in and the kind of God I don't believe in either. Um, so the basic sat aspect of God is the ground of all being, uh, the, the, the uh, underlying all consciousness and all being. Then chit is consciousness, or uh, and it's really what the Hindus call names and forms, nama rupa. And names and forms are the contents of consciousness. They're what consciousness can know. Um, another way of putting it in Kashmiri Shaivism, the same Indian roots as Satchitananda is that the ground of being is the knower and uh, part of the divine nature is also the known, that which is known. And names and forms, Nama Rupa, uh, make it clear that nature is full of forms, trees, animals, plants, dogs, cats, etc., flowers, books, I mean man-made forms as well, computers, telephones and whatnot. Um, nature is made of organized matter, it, all atoms, molecules, stars, galaxies. These are all forms. But there's also an ability to comprehend these forms in our minds because our minds are of the same nature as the rest of the universe, being consciousness underlying our minds as it underlies everything. Um, and the fact we can name stars, dogs, cats, etc., um, is there something in our minds that corresponds to the names and forms out there? So these are linked, that part of mind is names and forms, sat, chit. And then ananda is part of the divine being too. It means bliss or joy. And um, in the Hindu conception, uh, it's also shakti, which is the energy of nature, the, the feminine energy of nature. Um, and bliss or joy is part of the divine being. God is supremely blissful or joyful, partly because God's not trying to get anywhere or do anything or go anywhere or lack anything. If God's complete being, then uh, it's bliss is part of the divine nature. That's why when we have mystical experiences, um, they're nearly always blissful because we, uh, the closer we come to the divine consciousness, the greater we share in the divine bliss or joy. It's not that our brain is secreting bliss chemicals. I mean, bliss chemicals might help open us up, but it's it's not a chemical in the brain. It's, it's part of the very nature of ultimate consciousness itself. Well, that's the Hindu model. And the Christian model of God is very similar. The I go to church. I, I like praying together with other people and singing and being in the traditional holy place of my parish and um, 
taking part in the liturgical year and ceremonies and festivals and all that and rites of passage. Um, so I, I, I find the Christian tradition very helpful. And one of the things that most people understand least about Christianity is the creed in, in the communion service, say the creed. And most people see this as just obscurantist mumbo jumbo. Even a lot of Christians don't really know what it's about. They may say it, but they, they, it's not as if they, if if pressed, whether they could explain it very clearly. And basically, the creed is a statement of God as three aspects of God, the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And these are actually very similar concepts to Satchitananda. God, the Father, is the ground of being, a ground of conscious being. When God the Father first announces himself to Moses in the Old Testament. Um, Moses says, what's your name? And God replies, I am who I am, or I am that I am. Well, I am is what well, you couldn't get a clearer statement of conscious being in the present. I am, you couldn't be conscious without saying I. And am is conscious being in the present, not I will be or I was, I am. So this is the fundamental revelation, the primary revelation of God in the Old Testament. Um, and so it's conscious being is very similar to Sat. And the son, the second person of the Trinity, is the Logos. Um, in St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The word there is logos. And logos is very similar to Plato's idea of the realm of forms. And it's very similar to Nama Rupa, names and forms in the Hindu tradition. And so the second person of the Holy Trinity in the creed, it says, through him, all things were made. Well, it's clearly not just Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't around at the time things were made or the Big Bang or anything. It's a, it, Jesus of Nazareth is an incarnation of the Logos principle of God in a particular time and place. But the Christian creed has the this chit aspect is the Logos is this principle of names and forms uh, within the divine being. And then the Holy Spirit uh, and spirit means breath or wind or air is the energy principle of nature. And, um, you know, the sun's energy is an aspect of the Holy Spirit, the energy in our bodies, the wind. These are all aspects of the Holy Spirit, um, which in Hebrew, ruach is feminine, like Shakti in the Hindu tradition. Um, and so the primary metaphor in the Christian tradition is, is speaking. Um, I mean, all religious language is metaphorical because like most scientific languages, metaphorical too. I mean, we have to think in metaphors. Um, but speaking is the primary metaphor. And the idea is that God is the speaker. Um, it, this comes, it's part of the Jewish um, Old Testament vision. It's more sort of philosophically worked out in the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity, but it's right there in chapter one of the book of Genesis. Chapter one, verse one, you know, the earth was without form and void and the spirit of God moved on the face of the deep or the face of the waters. So it's an image of the wind moving over the ocean or the sea, which creates waves. And the spirit of God is the active energetic principle. It moves 
um, of God. And then God said, let there be light. And the speaking of God is clearly speaking. It's not writing, it's speaking. And speaking in that divine uh, metaphor, and also in your case and mine, um, involves both a flow of air and the form of words. So when I'm speaking now, there's an outward flow of air, the spirit, um, and there's the words, which have each word has a particular form, shape, structure, connection with other words, meaning, and so on. Um, so if I just heard words, they're silent in my mind. They're not manifested. If I just have breath, there's a flow of, of uh, but no structure. When I'm speaking, there's a combination of the flow of breath and the structure of the words. And this is the primary model of the Holy Trinity. God the Father is the speaker, the source of both words and of the flow of the energy in the universe. Um, and these are all part of the divine consciousness. And nature is a reflection of these, and so, so are we, both in the Christian and the Hindu tradition and in other religious traditions too. Our consciousness is a spark or a kind of fractal of divine consciousness. Our minds have the same quality and properties as the divine mind. So in the Bible, when it says we are made in God's image, it doesn't mean God's like a huge man with a white beard. It means that the fundamental nature of God is reflected in us and indeed in everything, in all nature. Um, and that, that fundamental nature is conscious. Um, so that's a rather long answer to the question of what do I mean by God? But a very good one, <laughs> a very good one. And, you know, my final question to you today uh, in the same thread of, of, of where we are now on that uh, beautiful description of, of God there, we, we know that uh, addictions, uh, militant atheism, despair, a lot of the cures to the, the suffering of man um, is is the finding of God, is going beyond and realizing God, and is overcoming ignorance in, in the Hindu tradition. So my question to you, and it, it's a difficult one, I wonder if you've got any further than I have with it, is why is the system set up in such a way that, that we are born in, into a world where one must discover this, and is not just knowing knowing it inherently? If you understand the thread of my question, why do you think it is uh, that God wants to play in itself in in ignorance, as it were, in the ego, in the in, uh, unaware of itself? Well, I think there are, there are several levels to this question. I mean, we live in a secular society at the moment where the educational system and the it's just assumed in the educational system and in the political system and in business, in the secular worldview that we live in a materialistic world, that the world is made of unconscious matter. So materialism is the official philosophy, really, of science, education and, and our secular world. And it's a worldview which is intrinsically atheistic, that denies the existence of God. And if people want to believe in God, it's sort of privatized. It's just a kind of like a personal hobby. You know, like some people like breeding gerbils, some people like believing in God. You know, it's treated <laughs> as if it's just kind of 
personal hobby that's entire it's okay it's as long as it's harmless and as long as you do it in the privacy of your home as it were um, um but the real world is about this secular world and we've now exported this to every government in the world they're all into economic growth through science and technology uh, these are the things that matter um and i think that makes it harder for modern people to see that there's a spiritual power beyond all this if you'd grown up in england in the middle ages uh, when there were monasteries everywhere there were monks and nuns doing contemplative prayer and meditation there were miracle workers there were the great medieval cathedrals which thank goodness we still have you go into one of those cathedrals and there's chanting and liturgy and incense and stained glass windows i mean completely psychedelic type experience um, um these the idea of something that's transcendent that's real but transcends our normal limited stuff wasn't something you have to search for years on um, and burrowing down into the internet or obscure mystical bookshops and stuff um it was obvious it was mainstream in the whole culture taken for granted by everybody and the same was true in india with hindu temples and in bali of course where i know which i know you know well there are all these temples and I just loved the fact when I went to Bali that this was just taken for granted as part of one's life. And when I visited a temple, which I loved doing when I was in India, I loved the fact that when I went to a temple in Ubud, so what's it, is it called Ubud? Yes, that's correct, Ubud, yeah. yes. Um, they welcomed me in and they said, when, in our temple, you should wear a sarong. And, and I hadn't got one with me, so they lent me one. And they invited me to be part of the temple and part of the ceremony not a tourist watching from a distance but in it, they were inclusive and i love that attitude um which is is generally the case with hindus um in india as well um the so this this idea that uh, you've got that is something you've got to have a long search for is not the case in most societies and cultures if you live in an islamic country you know there are mosques and minarets and sufi shrines and all over the place and you hear the call to prayer five times a day i mean it whereas now and if you live in modern secular britain you don't hear a call to prayer in fact no one ever talks about prayer and if people do it they do it in secret or private and it's simply not mentioned so i think that we have the odds are stacked against us in the modern world because of the rise of secular materialism um, and a, a relentless campaign by atheists and uh, to eliminate religion from the public sphere as much as it possibly can be um, and just relegate it to these privatized recesses of people's minds and houses and so on um, so i think that the 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 if one lived in a culture like well uh, in if one still lives in cultures like bali or india or uh, in Egypt or in, in most parts of the world, in fact, or Brazil, um, you know, where there's the, all these flourishing religions in Brazil, including Santo Daime and so on, and Umbanda and Candomblé and Catholicism and Pentecostalism and spirit possession and all that. If you live in those kinds of societies, you don't have to look far to find that there's something beyond. There are other ways open to you. In our world, you do. Um, so, I think that the, you know, clearly um, human beings are often preoccupied with 
immediate concerns like survival, feeding the family, getting a job, paying the bills, etc., uh, finding a partner, you know, raising kids. Uh, I mean, there are lots of very mundane things that we do, and these can get in the way of a spiritual life for some people. But on the other hand, for people who do have a spiritual path, the spiritual life can help with those through the practice of prayer and the practice of and the observation of rites of passage and the connection that comes through all that. Um, so if it's difficult today for most people, I don't think it's God's fault. Um, 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 and I think it's uh, the way we've set up our secular society that makes it more difficult than it might otherwise be. But of course, there's always it's always been a minority of people who are called towards to the spiritual life in a in a more full time capacity. I mean, most people, even in Tibet, before the Chinese invasion, weren't monks. I mean, monks were about a third of the male population, which is a very, very high proportion, but it wasn't everyone. Um, and in medieval Europe, there were lots of monasteries and convents and hermits as well, but it wasn't everyone. And so not everyone's called to that. In, in Buddhist countries like Burma and Thailand, there's lots of monks and, and lots of young people go through, spend a year or a few months as a monk as part of their growing up. Um, so they, there's an introduction to this way of life much more widely spread in those countries. So um, I think that it, uh, I think most cultures have been set up in such a way that it's been made easy for people on a spiritual quest to follow it. In the Middle Ages, if you wanted to become a monk, you could go to a monastery and say, I want to become a monk or a convent and say, I want to become a nun. And generally speaking, they'd welcome you. They wouldn't say, oh, no, you're not allowed to or you've got to do your A-levels first or something like that. Um, but do you feel, Rupert, that even in uh, religious societies, uh, obviously I live in Bali as well, so they can conceptually um, uh, kind of regurgitate the information that's been taught, but yet the experiential value is lacking in many more dogmatic, uh, dogmatic, religiously dogmatic areas. There's a, a, an experiential value lacking. Well, it depends what kind of experience you're talking about. I mean, not everyone in Bali would meditates, but most people in Bali, Hindus in Bali, take part in festivals and ceremonies. Yeah, yeah. And as I show in my book, Ways to Go Beyond, holy days and festivals are a major part of spiritual culture because they're one of the ways in which we connect with other people. We connect with rituals and we connect with a tradition. So... Not many people there would sort of say, oh, I don't want to go to this boring or, you know, they, kids, everybody takes part in these. They're connected in that way. They may be not connected in through meditation, but holy days and festivals, regular rituals, rites of passage, you know, including marriage, uh, funeral rites and child naming ceremonies and so on. I'm sure most of them participate in those. And those are all ways of reminding them they're in connection. These are all experiences. They may, if, if asked about the doctrines of Hinduism, uh, repeat things they'd been taught or stories they'd seen enacted, like the Ramayana, or, um, and they may not have gone very deeply into the philosophy. But I think in cultures like that, I lived in India for seven years, and um, 
I think that among almost everybody in India, Hindu, Muslim, Jain, Parsi, Sikh, um, almost everybody um, participates in that culture in a way that does give them a sense of connection and experience that isn't just dogma. And this is true even in modern England. I mean, the proportion of the population that go to church on Sundays on a regular basis is only about 5%. So anyone who goes to church in England today knows that they're in a very, very small minority. Um, and hardly anyone I've met in any church I've been to in England is there because they've been brainwashed by priests or feel they've got to through social pressure or it's just a sort of empty show or form. They're going to church for a variety of reasons, but they're nearly all experiential. Uh, they're going to church because they like singing with other people. They like being part of a local community, connecting with the holy place. You're being part of the liturgical year, the festivals like Christmas and Easter and the other major festivals. Um, and, you know, having proper rites of passage like funerals and weddings. And so not just at wedding venues, but having their wedding blessed. You know, Hindus and Buddhists and everyone in most parts of the world would think it's very important to have your marriage blessed. Whereas if it's a registry office or just some secular ceremony you've made up yourself without a spiritual element, then you don't get that blessing. And having been married for a long time, I know that when you're married, you need all the blessings you can get. <laughs> so, um, so I think even here in England, it's not, although most Christians probably don't meditate much and not that many have perhaps extreme religious experiences, spiritual experiences, I think quite a lot do. Um, but it's not just dull, dead dogma. It's uh, and doing what priests tell you in sermons. Uh, it's not, not that at all. It's I think it's primarily experiential. And I think that what people are getting out of it is all to do with this sense of connection with community, tradition, holy places, and so forth. Wonderful, Rupert, uh, wonderful. And, you know, thank you so much for all of your work over the so many years. It's been very inspirational for me, and I know many people in our community, the Psychedelic Society, Terence McKenna experience, they, it's been very inspirational for them too, and they're carrying on the good work. You know, we have people in the, 20s and 30s and really carrying on the good work you know so i want to thank you for that for your life's work well thank you and thank you for doing what you're doing and um, you know, giving all these ideas and inspiration to people through the internet yes and uh rupert if people want to buy your book it's available on amazon i personally listen to the audio book uh, which was uh, narrated by you mm. um, which i really recommend and if they want to find out more about you, what is your website, Rupert? It's sheldrake.org, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E.org, O-R-G. I also have a YouTube channel where there's a lot of dialogues and, and um, videos and uh, podcasts as well. All of those are linked to through my website, sheldrake.org. So that's the best place to go for any further information. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Rupert, and uh, I hope we meet again sometime. Thank you, and all the best. Yes, thanks, Rupert.